0: Welcome to seed to Scale.
1: We're four investors with backgrounds as founders who I met at the engineering school at the University of Pennsylvania. Tim Young. Nahal Mehta. Hadley Harris. Vic Singh. We started ENIAC in 2009. With more than 80 years of combined experience building our own companies. We now lead seed rounds and bold founders who use code to create transformational companies. Starting a company from the ground up is really hard. In this podcast, we'll be having conversations with some of the most interesting founders, investors, and influencers. About the ins and outs of building an early stage company. We talk about it all. Funding, growth, and everything it takes to build a lasting business. Hi, everyone. This is Hadley Harris, co-founder of ENIAC Ventures. Today on the show, I have Renaud Visage, the co-founder and CTO of Eventbrite. Eventbrite is a leading global ticketing and event technology platform. He founded in 2006, took it through the financial crisis, and then all the way through their IPO last year. I got to know Renaud when we worked together as he was an outside board member in one of our portfolio companies, Snips, and I have really enjoyed building a relationship with him over the years as he's become very involved with a bunch of startups as an advisor and investor.
0: I think it's immensely valuable to understand the other side of the table when you're negotiating a new round. Hi, Wendell, thanks for being on the show. Thank you for having me. To start off, we'd love to hear a little bit of your
1: background and how you got into the world of tech startups.
0: Yeah, sure. It's been a, a long journey. I started my career as a civil engineer. So that's why I studied in engineering school. I moved to San Francisco in nineteen ninety-six from France uh, to work as an environmental engineer, which I did for a few years. It was right when the web started taking off. So I, I got really interested in all the stories I was hearing about all these wonderful companies that were emerging and two weeks later were ipo So I, I got really interested in, in the technology that all these companies were using and started thinking about what to build in a product. So I built a few prototypes just to learn the basics. And then in 2000, I decided to switch careers. I think I posted my resume on Craigslist and two weeks later I was starting at a photo sharing company in in San Francisco. I joined, I was employee number 30, I think, and in one year we went from 30 to 120 and back to 10. So we Caught the uh, end of the dot-com era in in dramatic fashion, I would say. Um, But I learned a lot in the process, and I kept working for Sony for a while. Until the end of 2005, when I met uh, Kevin and Julia Hartz. Kevin had been a successful entrepreneur already, and he was thinking about building this event management platform based off PayPal uh, to do payment processing. We just started working together on this project. It was 13 years ago now.
1: And that just must have been an incredible journey going from founding a company through IPO to, that's
0: relatively rare. Tell us about that journey. I think it would be really helpful for our listeners. At the beginning we we really bootstrapped the company, so with the three of us with a couple of interns here and there for about two years. So really trying to find Product market fit. There were a lot of products for the higher end event management for larger conferences or for the professional uh, stadium size type of events, but nothing for what we call the long tail of events, so the small medium sized events that mostly relied on email, paper, and posters on the walls uh, still at the time. We integrated with PayPal, which was I think one of the, the key features we provided was access to cash for event organizers. So with just their email address, they were able to collect ticket sales directly into their account, their PayPal account. For us, it made it really easy because we didn't have to take care of things like risk and fraud. So for a couple of years, we uh, bootstrap Kevin invested some of his money from his past ventures into the company. And uh, we found product market fit pretty quickly. There was a real need for our service. Uh, We started becoming popular with uh, tech events in in the Valley, especially and then tech events in New York and London and then other types of events. So at the end of 2009, uh, 2009, um, that's when we raised our Series A uh, with Sequoia and then started hiring aggressively since then to go through all the different stages of growth that we've experienced since.
1: Curious what some of your biggest learnings have been. I mean, through this experience, and and they're probably pretty different from the early stages of the company through as you guys have been scaling over the last you know last five years, especially. What are some of those learnings from both of those types of times within the company?
0: Yeah, I think the the learnings are that scaling is hard. Uh, <laughs> decision making is always. I think the the hardest thing to do for any startup at any stage, and that doesn't change even after you you go through IPO. As you expand, it becomes more and more complicated and the complexity increases. So I found that going back to very simple frameworks for decision-making processes really helps. I'm thinking especially of the focus on people, process and tools. You can apply it to your customers, to your internal processes, to how you train engineers. There's all kinds of applications for a very really simple way of thinking about operationally expanding the team and expanding your product. So we're thinking, do you have the right people in place for the next stage of your growth? Do you have the right processes that allows these people to accelerate the growth and finally do you have the right tools for both your customers for internal processes to be smooth to automate a lot of the things that make scaling economically viable over the long term so that's something we always try to keep in mind is how to make the right decisions at the right time it's more an art than a science, unfortunately. So it, it goes with a lot of intuition, a lot of perception as well of the overall environment of uh, how the company is, is behaving, how the customers are responding to your innovations, and then to adapt course over time to make the right uh, investments in the right areas. And then, uh, you know, when
1: folks see companies like Eventbrite right from the outside, they imagine this kind of smooth up into the right, in terms of progress, but we both know that's that's never true. Maybe it'd be helpful to tell us about some of the times when you guys really uh, struggled and, and faced some, some real tough challenges and, and how you got through that.
0: So I think one thing we've done well is remain true to our initial idea of democratizing ticketing. So over over time, we've had a few uh, bumpy events along the way. I'm thinking especially of the financial crisis of 2008-2009. That was about two plus years after we started, and that's when we really needed our next injection of cash to be able to go to the next step now that we had found product market fit. Unfortunately, the global crisis really put a damp on VCs' appetite for uh, risky startups like ours, so we saw a lot of VCs at the time were declined by... Fortunately, we had a a very good network of angels and, and friends who had been successful in the past, who were able to bridge us for a year. And then we went back at it at the end of 2009. Fortunately, the crisis didn't have an impact on the business. I would say on the contrary, a lot of people found themselves looking for jobs, networking. So there were a lot of um, job dating events, speed dating, which was quite interesting. So we actually... It continued executing pretty well during that time and when we came back towards the end of uh, after the summer of 2009 we had a very strong case for an investment then and we were able to raise from Sequoia at the end of 2009 but that that came very close to being the end for us if we had not been able to raise at the time or if the business had been impacted by the financial crisis
1: It's really interesting, you you and I are old enough to have gone through the dot-com crash and the the financial crisis a lot of young entrepreneurs have only known great times but you know that those can't last forever what advice would you have for entrepreneurs that are running small businesses or you know startups out there if the economy macro economy starts to turn what, what advice would you give them
0: one of the greatest lessons, I think, from that period was to raise money when you don't really need it and to have a, a nice cushion of cash to uh, be able to withstand these longer periods of of doubt and uh, skepticism from the investment community, I would call it. So I think I still see too, maybe too many entrepreneurs waiting until they're running out of cash because they want to optimize on how much dilution they're going to get through the round. And sometimes I think that's fine when everything is honky dory and everybody's raising left and right. But when times are a little harder, I, I think that's often a, a big source of trouble for companies that can then not raise. You know, you spent a lot of your
1: career spanning both the tech ecosystem in the US, but also Europe. Curious how you've seen both of those ecosystems develop, especially kind of Europe compared to the US over your career.
0: Yeah, it's been uh, very interesting in Europe. So I started spending a lot more time in in Europe when we expanded into uh, different European countries with Eventbrite. We started in 2011, we launched the UK then. And I kind of as a European, felt the responsibility of evangelizing a bit uh, the company. And at the time, 2011, 2012, it was a very immature ecosystem, I would say, a lot of desire to uh, be an entrepreneur, but very few role models, very few successful exits at the time. Um, so we could see the, the beginnings, uh, but we, I felt there was a long way to go before uh, we were going to catch up. Fortunately, I think there were a lot of programs put in place, both by governments and by the local ecosystems to really shore up all the different pieces that are needed for healthy ecosystems. And, And I could see that in London, in Berlin, in Paris, in Stockholm. I think investments in 2012 were like 4 billion now they're at 25 billion if i take france for example i think in 2011 there was one little space in the center of paris that attracted most of the startups now we have uh, station f which is one of the largest building hosting a thousand startups in it started by Xavier Niel. there's government programs left and right to help startups but also scale-ups to get to the next stage to get create the next unicorns in Europe. So there's tremendous energy. There's a lot of appetite for risk now that didn't exist at the time, especially on the investment side. I I think a few things are still missing compared to the Valley, like the quality of of the people who can scale up uh, still too few success stories that have scaled to billion or $10 billion valuation. So there's, I think, a, a talent war that's coming to attract the right talents for all the scale-ups that we're uh, creating today in, in Europe. You spoke about just
1: not having as many entrepreneurs that have scaled companies. And, and you see that a lot, even with smaller or virgin ecosystems in, in North America. As an entrepreneur who's thinking about starting a company, maybe they're, they're in Europe and they're trying to decide whether to start in Europe or or, try, or move to the U.S., what, what are the pros of starting off in Europe?
0: I think the main pro is, is the cost basis. I mean, it's so much cheaper to start a company in, in France compared to Silicon Valley very uh, successful engineers that are being trained by the best schools and they're at salaries that are much, much lower to what we're seeing in the Valley. We have a poor, very talented young people who want to be uh, working at startups. And that's incredibly exciting, I think, for the ecosystem. And then in addition to
1: being CTO at Eventbrite, you're involved with a bunch of different companies as an angel investor, you've invested on behalf of some, some great uh, venture funds, independent Board member, how, how we first met. How do you compare those different roles in terms of what you really enjoy about them and, and kind of why you're doing so many different things?
0: I found that I'm very interested in their operational pains and not just on the technical side. So th- that's what attracted me to work with some VCs. I, I wanted to understand what it was like on the other side. How are the investment decisions made? What are the criteria that go into that? Because I, I think it's immensely valuable to understand the other side of the table when you're negotiating a new round, for example, for um, the startups that I'm working with. But it's very, very interesting for me to understand the challenges, um, to bring a unique entrepreneurial experience to the table that some of the investors don't have because they've been investors for most of their lives. And when you're considering getting involved with a
1: startup, especially these very young seed stage startups, Are there certain attributes you're looking for either as a marker for future success or because you think you can really have an
0: impact on on them? I think, especially at seed, the main question is, are these people the best people to solve this problem? Uh, I think the founders, and I know that's what a lot of investors say, but the, the success long term of most of these companies will rely on the... Internal motivation that these founders have to crack the problem that they're uh, tackling. And do you find, especially with entrepreneurs that are very early in their journey, that there's
1: a piece of advice or a couple of pieces of advice that you're often giving them?
0: I think it's both to be to take your take your time and then be very aggressive once you've found when you've cracked the problem. So take your time building the MVP, making sure it's answering the right question that you're, or the right pain points that your customers have. Take your time validating that the way you're selling or your pricing is the right one in the market. And then once you've found validation that all these are... are aligning, I would say, then be very aggressive on the rollout, on hiring the sales team that you need to actually convert into self-financing in a way. Profitability, generating cash allows you to do that and to be less reliant on external funding for growth. So I always keep that in mind, the long-term vision, and try to retrofit that into a roadmap and a plan that makes it possible for the entrepreneurs to find that self-reliance at some point. Yeah, that's really interesting because it you don't see that as much,
1: especially with kind of the stereotypical Silicon Valley mentality. But going back to our conversation or our questions about the you know potential macroeconomic turn at, at some point, that's going to become more and more important, and, and entrepreneurs that are thinking that way are, are more likely to be able to get through that.
0: Well, especially at seed stage when you you have room to experiment and maybe there's a slightly better bigger opportunity, right? alongside where you started. And if you don't talk enough to your customers or take the time to really get the lay of the land of understanding the industry you want to get into, I think you're losing an opportunity to maybe tackling something bigger. Um, so that's where taking your time within limits, of course, because you don't have unlimited funding at that time, but sure. uh, to be patient on hiring, for example, maybe you don't need a full sales force yet because you're still iterating on the product ID. So all these elements like keeping them in, in in mind for them to be as good as they can be for the next round. All right, we're
1: gonna do something I call the lightning round. I, I kinda of stole it from my friend Harry Stebbins, but I think I gave it a, a cooler name. I'm gonna ask you a bunch of quick questions and just give the response that first comes to mind. All right. What's the primary reason that startups fail?
0: I think beyond the obvious reasons like running out of cash or not finding product market fit, I think the primary reason why a lot of startups fail is fear. Fear of going too fast, fear of raising too much money and not, doing, not knowing what to do with it, fear of spending too much. I've seen that quite a few times. And in, in general, fear of failure. Um, I think that still slows down a lot of entrepreneurs that. And I think the best entrepreneurs, the ones with experience, put their fields aside and and just focus on aggressive execution once they find that product market fit.
1: What's a sector of space that the market is bearish on that you're bullish about?
0: Well, there's one that's really personal. I think the travel industry has kind of stopped innovating. Everything is available online, but it's still a major pain to do any travel arrangements. I think AR is something that I would love to see used in, in businesses. So I, I know it's it's been applied to some consumer applications that are short-lived, I would say, and beyond the why factor, don't live up to the expectations. But I think in industry at the office, in the way we interact with each other, I think AR could be very game-changing for a lot of things that are not being funded today.
1: Uh, yeah, I agree with that. It's, it's really just a question of time. And then, what's the what's the primary thing you'd like to see change in the startup ecosystem?
0: Directly from my experience, I would say it's it's the lack of support and attention to non-CEO founders, from VCs mostly. I'd say there's way more emphasis being put on the CEO founder. And I was at a small dinner with other non-CEO founders a couple of weeks ago in, in San Francisco and we all had the same observation. Like a lot of time and energy spent on coaching and helping the CEO founders become better at their jobs, especially when you take someone who it's for who is the first entrepreneurial experience. But for non-CEO founders, there's actually very little. And that's why I'm also working with Pointland Capital because they have the Founder Summit where all the founders are welcome. And that is truly a great experience for them coming there, being able to network with their peers, getting training directly on their subjects. I think all founders wanna get better in their job and grow and become the leaders that they can be inside the organizations. And I think it's a lost opportunity not to invest in them as well.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. That's something we saw as well. And and one of the reasons we always include all the founders in, in all of our events and in, in our platform. And then finally, what's your favorite tech company that you're not involved with?
0: I think right now, for me, the most impressive tech company is SpaceX. The space is the next frontier and they're making it like accessible and affordable to develop things in in that ultimate frontier. They also make people dream, which is really important in these darker days of gloomy news everywhere. So I'm really excited about the opportunity that they're creating for basically humanity to think beyond the confines of our own planet. I think it will create the next trillion dollar industry. I'm not sure what shape or form it's going to take, but that's very exciting. And yes, I would love to go to with
1: <laughs> Me too. Well, Renato, thank you so much for joining. This has been awesome. I'm sure our, our listeners really appreciate it and learned a lot. So thank you for being on the show.
0: Thank you, Headley, for having me.